something. The mute is on. I wonder who, I wonder who pressed the mute button. Thank you. Yeah, so um, hopefully we'll become more and more familiar with it and, and what God wants to say to us um, through this, this book. And um, you'll see that I've, I've headed, 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 <laughs> it's going to be one of those mornings. <laughs> Joe knows that, it's been one of those mornings. Um, the mystery and the power of prayer. If you try and analyse prayer, here we have Almighty God, creator of everything, sustainer of everything, who has plans and purposes that he will accomplish in the earth. And then there's our puny prayers. You think, what on earth is this about? What, what is prayer about? And had it not been for the fact that God ordained it and gives us so many clues in the scriptures concerning his desire that we seek him in prayer, um, we would abandon it. It's hard enough as it is, isn't it, at times, but we would abandon it, wouldn't we? And so there's something of a mystery about it. And um, God calls us into fellowship with him in order to accomplish his purposes. He's, he's willing to have us involved in the execution of the things that he's already planned and purposed and will bring about. And um, as... Um, you know, Ivan and Sarah had put in their card, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God's church will win. God's church will prevail because that's his purpose. And then there's the power of prayer. And many could testify to the power of prayer. And I hope that we'll see that in what we look at from Nehemiah this morning. Now, when I last spoke on Nehemiah, I, we looked at chapter 1 and we considered the source of Nehemiah's distress. He had some news and it caused him great distress and it actually drove him to prayer. And the news was this, that Jerusalem, in spite of the fact that um, a a good number of people, 50,000 people from the exile had gone back to Jerusalem and they established worship, they rebuilt the temple, um, they reintroduced the, the, the law of God into that. Nevertheless, the city itself was in ruins and it caused him distress. And if you know, the reason for all this is that during a period of history, really from Solomon onwards, the people of Israel sinned over and over again. They ran after other gods. Their leaders were men who led their people astray. And in the end, God had to discipline them. They had warnings from the prophets particularly Jeremiah, but they would not heed the warnings. And in the end, God uh, had to cause the fall of Jerusalem uh, through Nebuchadnezzar and the people taken off into exile, uh, into Babylon, which eventually became Persia, which is really about the time that we're, we're looking now. And this was part of God's discipline. But as we know, as we looked at some of those scriptures, the same prophet who warned about God's judgment also promised restoration. If the people would turn back to God then God would hear them and because they were his people and he would restore them. But in spite of the fact that, um, that worship had been re-established, uh, Nehemiah, when he hears this news, he is very distressed about it. And he's distressed because he shared God's passion for Jerusalem. He knew from the scriptures that Jerusalem should be the praise of the whole earth. God had said, this is where I'm going to dwell. 
This is going to be a showpiece for me and my kingdom. Uh, This is going to be a visual aid to the nations all around what it is to be a people under God, a people who had the, the Lord as their God and the provisions that God made and the glory of all that. And, um, and, and that, was, that was God's intention. And Nehemiah knew that. And that's why he was distressed. And I likened it that day um, to, to God's passion now for the church. Uh, God's focus has moved away from a, a, a central place like Jerusalem to a company of people that we call the church. And that's where God wants to display his glory. And that's where God's passion is. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, um, and, and the f- church is the focus of history as far as God is concerned. And I did mention at the time that there are some Christians who um, have more passion for the city of Jerusalem than they do for the church of God. Now I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be interested in the Middle East and all the things that are going on there and pray for God's people there. But, but nevertheless, there are some people who have their centre of gravity a bit to one side concerning that because as far as the New Testament is concerned, God's passion is for the church. So today we're going to look more closely at um, the role prayer played in Nehemiah's life, resulting in him being God's instrument of restoration. So um, we're going to pray, then we're going to read two chapters. I feel that will be helpful for us to do that. Father, we thank you uh, for all that you have um, preserved regarding um, your history with your people. Father, we know it's given for our instruction. Father, that you've preserved this, um, Lord, not just for the Jewish people, but for all those who love you. And Lord, we are those who love you. And Lord, we want to learn the lessons, Lord, from this scripture. Lord, please reveal things to us that that, um, not only feed our minds, but actually touch our hearts and cause our behaviour to change and our our perception of of what you are able to do uh, to grow. Please, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read the first two chapters. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakiliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your, your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. 
O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And if you know what that meant, he was a wine taster, um, he was a slave, but uh, he had a very high position um, with the king, a very important position. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was being, being brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to God, the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send, send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates, gave them the letters, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts except me uh, with me except the one I was riding on by night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool and there was not enough room for my mount to get through so I went up the valley by night examining the wall finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king has said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven 
will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you've no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So I read that story because it's rather complete in itself from uh, Nehemiah um, receiving this burden concerning Jerusalem and then the process by which uh, God uh, prepared him uh, to be God's answer, part of God's plan to restore Jerusalem, something that God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah long before. It's just amazing how the different ways that God gets people's attention God's got a plan and a purpose. That, that prophecy in Jeremiah that we all know, I have plans for you, you know, plans to prosper you uh, and not to harm you, plans to do you good. God has plans, but how does he communicate these to us? All sorts of different ways. So we're going to look at just some, at some aspects of this and hopefully it will help us get some understanding of the, 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 the power of prayer in all this. So here's bad news. Possible responses to bad news regarding the honour of God. Now these, these might be responses to any bad news, but because we're, we're talking about the honour of God here, this is what concerned Nehemiah. God's honour was at stake here. There was disgrace concerning God's people. And that will be true for us, God's honour concerning the church, because if the, if the church is attacked and ridiculed, then in actual fact God is undermined and dishonoured, isn't he? Because we represent him. We have his name. We are Christians. We are Christ men and women. So if, if we are ridiculed and dishonoured, then God is dishonoured. So there's some possible reactions. Can't afford to get involved. Uh, he's um, a very important man in the, the court of Artaxerxes. Um, he's not free. He's not free just to go off when he wants to. And he's not really free, normally speaking, to negotiate things with the king. He's there to keep his mouth shut unless he's asked to speak and he's got a job to do. And in those days... Um, we know that um, uh, if, if you stepped out of line, um, then you could easily lose your life. Things were very, very tense in those situations. So he could have said, well, it's, yes, I'm sorry about all this. I'm, I'm really sorry for Jerusalem, but I'm sorry I can't get involved because it's just, there's just too much at stake here. Um, he could have rushed to put things right with all energy. That can sometimes be my reaction to a problem. Um, okay, let's do it. What have we got to do? Let's go and do it. Let's get the tools. Let's go and fix it, you know, whatever it is. Um, and he could have been very risky and said, right, I'm just going to you know, go AWOL and, and, and I'm going to fix this. And come on, come on guys, let's, let's, I don't know what we're going to do yet, but we've got to go and do something down there. It's, it's, a, it's a disgrace. And they need some people like us who's going to move some stuff, you know. That, or it could take the problem to God, which, of course, is what he did. And we can see... Uh, the outcome. Now, Nehemiah cared enough to get involved and prayer um, was his response. And prayer features a lot in Nehemiah. There's kind of 12 uh, instances of prayer uh, recorded uh, in the book. And um, because it was, he knew it was God's concern, um, it was a good thing to go to God and just to begin to pour out his heart to God uh, about um, the issue. And um, at this point, um, he's not necessarily asking God to do anything right at the beginning. Um, We're told that he was um, praying for quite some time, quite a number of days. Uh, But he took it to God, and that was important. And in point three, uh, he had faith to wait four months. Now, there's a spelling mistake here, and I think you might have seen it. We could have said, um, from Citroen to Nissan here. All right? 
because that's the car. It should have one S. Okay. All right, so we got that out of the way. And uh, it's Kislev to Nissan, one S, um, is about four months. And we see that he did nothing for four months but pray and seek God about the whole thing. So we've got to say what's happening during this time. Now, some of this is slightly speculation, but I think all that that, uh, Nehemiah was able to accomplish and the things that he said later give us a a, a hint that this probably is true. I believe that as he was pouring out his heart to God, he was also receiving more of the heart of God. You know, uh, he he was familiar with the scriptures, I'm sure, that he would have recalled to mind some of those scriptures that I mentioned about Jerusalem being the praise of all the earth and how dreadful that was, that that was now not the case. And I'm sure he was pouring out. But I'm, I'm sure that he was catching more of God's heart. And, and you know, that, that's what, one of the things about what prayer is about, isn't it? It's, be, it's so that God can communicate to us that we begin to think his thoughts after him. You know, our thoughts are not like his thoughts, as we're told. And our ways not like his ways. But one of the things through prayer, as we express our concerns to God, is that he begins uh, to reveal those things to us. And he was receiving a vision of a restored city. Um, you, don't, you don't go um, and uh, go to all the trouble and restore a city unless somehow or other you know what it's going to look like at the end. And Nehemiah would have had a picture, even though it's in ruins, he would have a picture of what it's about. And I think that's important for us as the church. How does God describe the church? Okay. Now we could we could find all fault with the church, don't we? You know, we've we all know we're not perfect, and no 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 uh, particular church is perfect, and we're not doing some of the things we ought to be doing, and all the rest. We can find a lot of fault, and if we're not careful, our heads go down, and we think, oh, what's the point? What's the point? But we say, God, what do you think about the church? What what are your plans for the church? And people who uh, you know, face all the difficulties and, um, and do all sorts of things in church like, like, like leading churches and leading groups of people and going on missions and all that, it's because they've seen a vision of the church. We've seen the city of God and nothing, nothing can be the same again. We've seen it. And I believe Nehemiah saw a vision of a restored church. And detailed plans were forming in his mind as to how this vision was to be released. I'll, I'll pick this up again in a moment. But it's quite clear from what happened that he wasn't just moaning to God. I reckon he had a pen and a pad, you know, a paper or, or parchment, and God was showing him things and he was writing them down uh, because you know, he needed some detail later. It's not just passion, but he needed some detail. And this, by the way, this vision of a restored city, I, I may have mentioned it before, but there's a story about people going around one of the Disney World places, which one it was, whether it was in Florida or whatever, and um, the, the, the guide was taking people around, and the person said to the guide, and this was some time after Walt Disney had died, they said, oh, this is fantastic. Isn't it a pity that Walt Disney hadn't seen this? And they said, yes, he did. It was up here. All this he saw. You know, He, he had a vision all for, of all this. Uh, and, uh, and, and so... You know, don't mourn about that fact. Maybe it's sad that he hasn't actually seen it in reality, but he saw it all up here. He he had it in his head. So then, detailed plans were forming. God was preparing him to be a willing and effective instrument. 
I hinted at it earlier, but when we pray, God has the opportunity to mould us and fashion us. Our ways are not God's ways. Our thoughts are not his ways. But as we pray and seek him, particularly as we pour out our hearts to him, God is able to transform us and to bring our thinking in line with his thinking and his plans. And that's, that's very important. We're, we often think about prayer, about getting things done. And there's a bit of a quotation a bit at the end of this section that says, it has been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. You know, and very often we've got needs and concerns and we say, God, will you, will you do this and do that? But God, as we know, has plans and purposes. And somehow he feeds us into that, even sometimes when we're not aware of it, because we begin to think his thoughts after it. And there's a scripture there from Philippians. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, honour God, bless God, worship God, and, you know, love his word. And then it goes on, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So there are things that we don't want to do. And uh, we may know about some problem or other, and we think, <laughs> not something I could fix. But if we're prepared to take that before God, maybe that, 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 that God has got our attention about this thing because he wants to work something in us and for us to be the solution to that particular problem. I've mentioned it before, so I won't labour it, but when we were invited to come here um, to Beacon from being at um, New Life, we were very happy at New Life and had um, you know, a vision of things that are happening there. And to Joe and I, it didn't seem a particularly good idea. I mean, we love the people here, but it didn't seem a particularly good idea because we had no plans to move. But because of the way it was put to us, we prayed about it. And God changed our mind. So it wasn't like, OK, I'll go. You know, yes, okay, I've gone, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like that. That's what we wanted to do when it came to it, having, you know, visited a few times in the, in the intervening period. God changed our mind of it. Isn't God great when he does that? You know, I remember years ago a, a lady said, I couldn't become a Christian because God might make me be a missionary in, in Africa. You know, and I, I'd have to leave my family and everything like that. And you think, well, okay. <laughs> but, but if God wanted her to be a missionary... She'd come to a point where that's what she wanted to do because God is at work in us, you know. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And his power to change us is often in the process of prayer and seeking God. So Nehemiah got to the point when he was willing, very willing. Trusting in God's faithfulness, he identifies with the sins of his nation. Do you notice that in chapter 1? I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands and so on. Now, if you think about it, uh, Nehemiah is at least a generation removed from the people God was judging. And, you know, these were various kings and people who had gone against God very wickedly in spite of what all that the, the prophets said. And God judged them. And Nehemiah could very easily have said, it's not my problem. Okay? Yep, okay, my forebears, they were, they were a rotten lot, but me, I'm fine. But you see, he recognised he was, he was amongst his own people. These were his people. Uh, these were God's people and he was part of them. And he couldn't step out of the circle. And sometimes in church life, 
some things go wrong and people say, okay, I'm stepping out of the circle here. You lot are not doing it right. Okay, there's something wrong in this church. Okay, instead of saying, we're not doing it right, what should we do? <laughs> they step outside the circle. And some of the things that Julian was sharing with us so effectively last week about fellowship and about what we do together and so on. We have to recognise that we are a people. We're not just a bunch of individuals who happen to agree on a few things. We are a people. And Nehemiah accepted he was part of a chosen people. And we're part of a chosen people. And so he fully identified with them. And this is a a mark of intercession. Um, Paul says to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. All kinds of prayers, all sorts of different prayers, but one of them, the one type of prayer is intercession. And not all prayer is intercession. Um, Some of it is just our petitions. We're just asking God for things. But intercession is where there are people who have a need, there is a need, and we fully identify as much as we can with those people, such that, in a sense, we almost take on their burdens and their concerns and we bring them to God, as if they were bringing them to God. And that's that's true intercession. And um, this is what Jeremiah was... Sorry, Jeremiah, this is what Nehemiah was doing here. He was fully identifying with these people. And um, you, could, you could put it in a church context. Let's assume somebody here um, got involved in some gross sin, all right, which brought great disrepute to this church. I'm not aware of that just at the moment, all right, but it, it, it happens. Okay. Now, we could all say, nothing to do with me. Um, <laughs> it's not to do with me. It was them. You know, we're not all like that. But I believe it will be appropriate for us to come together and confess to God that we as a people have sinned. You know, we're not a separate bunch of individuals. We are a people and we have sinned. And that will be absolutely appropriate because God says you're in a body. You're all parts of a body, like was mentioned again last week. And, um, you know, we're individually parts of it, but we're all part of the same body. And so confession... You know, corporate confession like that can be a, can be quite genuine and and, um, and reasonable. And this is what what Nehemiah uh, was doing. And um, but I've just mentioned here about repentance, um, because sometimes people get confession and repentance mixed up. Um, often you do two things together: you confess, uh, you know, to God your sin, and then you repent. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I believe repentance can only be personal because you are turning away from that which is wrong. Repentance is about agreeing with God that this is wrong and I'm now going to turn from it. You agree in your, in your head and you do some actions uh, to make sure that it happens. All right? So, you know, it, that, that, that's, I think, uh, is right. And should we, show we shouldn't get the two confused. I remember some little time ago, um, some, some, people, some Christians decided to go um, somewhere in the Middle East, I forget now, and to apologise to um, some Muslim nations for the Crusades. 
And I can identify with that. Some dreadful things were perpetrated in the, in the name of Jesus by the, cru- by the crusaders uh, you know, towards the Saracens and, and others who were, who were there. And I think to go and apologise on behalf of the church, to confess that we've sinned and, you know, will you forgive us as a, as a total church? But they're all, the, the word repentance was also mentioned. You know, and unless you are personally involved in it, you can't repent. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave that point, but just to make it... So what Nehemiah is doing, is doing here is quite legitimate because he's identified with his people. And um, uh, we've got the scripture there from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And it's so important that, that confession of sin um, clears the way for works of faith. Uh, it's very, very important. I mean, otherwise, Nehemiah might have acted out of a sense of guilt. Can you understand that? He might have said, we've sinned, I'm going to work for God to try and work this off. I've got to work this off because we've sinned. I've got to somehow get on God's side um, by just working my socks off to build these walls. You know? And that would not be in faith. That's what the Bible would call dead works. And it's important to know that we actually get on the right side of God by confessing our sins and trusting in his forgiveness. Um, that, that's how we do it, not by working. And then when we work, we work out of faith because God has promised us success. And that's why we work and we enjoy it because God, we're not, we haven't got this burden. And um, you know, later on in, in the story, um, if Nehemiah hadn't got this bit sorted, then when the enemies came to, a, to a, attack him, He'd be thinking, hmm, yeah, perhaps, perhaps I've still got sin. Perhaps we're, perhaps we're, still, we're being, still being punished uh, for the sin that we committed. And he would lose all his strength. And we know that that's, that's Satan's tactic, don't we? We can read about it in Revelation chapter 12, that he accuses the, the believers day and night, that's Satan. But they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. All right? Not by working their socks off, but by trusting in the blood of Jesus, what we've done today, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that's so, so important. It doesn't mean that we don't treat sin serious, seriously or we do some things in our lives to, to deal with the sin. But in, in terms of this particular activity, it was important for Nehemiah to clear the ground. So he's now not dealing with the issue of sin. He's dealing with God's purpose in re, rebuilding the city in faith. Let's turn over. <clears throat> Having counted the cost, he makes himself available. He was to leave comfort and security for a ruined city, ridicule, slander and danger. And he'd also spend some of his own money looking after the needs of the people. It was going to be very, very costly uh, for, for Nehemiah. But there was a greater issue. It was God's honour that was an issue the place of God's dwelling, Jerusalem, and so that was so much more important to him. And hopefully that's, that's the reason why we're prepared to make sacrifices as Christians. Um, it's not because God demands it and I've got to dig in my pocket or whatever it is. Uh, it's because there is something better. There's something better to go for um, than the things I've been hanging on to. So he counted the cost, all right. And um, it, just to give an echo there from the Apostle Paul, where he says to the Philippians, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. What was to his profit was he was a very famous Jew. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he's had an excellent pedigree. Uh, no one could question it. And he, he gave that all up completely for the sake of Christ. What is more, I count, consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So Nehemiah had a vision of a restored city and he was prepared to pay the price for it. And the next bit is the test of faith. How would Nehemiah approach the king? What mood would he be in? To anger the king would have meant death. And this is very much a parallel with Esther. You know the story of Esther? Okay, it comes um, just in the next book. And um, Esther's in a very similar situation in some ways. You know the story that um, uh, uh, someone in the king's court by the name of Haman uh, had a scheme to get rid of the Jews uh, and he tricked the king uh, into making an edict and it, the, the chance was all the, the Jews would be massacred. And um, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, comes to her with a scheme. Now she's a queen. She was chosen um, amongst the Jews to be a, a queen of, uh, of, of King uh, Xerxes. He's before Artaxerxes. Lovely names, aren't they? Xerxes. And in those days, she could not approach, even though she was the husband, so he was the husband, she could not approach him without him bidding her to come. Right? And nobody could. It was, it was the king's prerogative to call people to himself. But she has this mission to go to the king and try and save her people. And um, eventually she goes. And, and, but before she goes, she makes that wonderful statement, doesn't it? If I perish, I perish. She knew how dangerous it was. But she gets a very similar um, reception to to Nehemiah in some ways. Because when when she goes to the king, he he says, what do you want? I'll give you half the kingdom if you want it. What do you want? And of course she's got a little scheme up her sleeve about holding a banquet and so on to trick Haman, if you know the story. But but it's the same kind of thing here uh, with Nehemiah. uh, That, you know, What kind of mood would the king be in? To anger him would mean death. And he did not force the issue. I'm sure it was burning with him. If you're anything like me, if if something's been stored up in me, I'm I'm inclined to blurt it out at the inappropriate moment. I can't, you know, I'm looking for this time. But he trusted God. If God had brought him this far and shown him all these things and got him lined up for this, he could trust him that God would open the door. And... um, in response to the king's question, uh, what is it uh, that you would like to, you know, why, sorry, why, why um, uh, is your face sad and so on, uh, he comes back with another question to arouse the king's sympathy. He says, um, um, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? And then he says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire? So he's just trying to get the king's sympathy without blurting it out, what he wants. And amazingly, the door does open. It opens wide. What do you want, the king says. And uh, that's just wonderful. And I've just put an aside here as a contrast. Uh, all these um, procedures and, and things that had to go, the protocol that had to operate in order to get anywhere near the king, isn't it wonderful 
that, that the throne room is open for us to get to the King of Kings. Isn't that fantastic? And I just quoted from Hebrews there. Let us then approach the throne of grace, and it's always for us a throne of grace. It isn't a, a, a throne of retribution, of judgment, uh, of condemnation. It's never that for us, because as we've sung this morning, before the throne of God above, you know, I have a, a, a perfect, a strong and perfect plea. You know, all the time Jesus is in heaven for us, it's the throne of grace. And uh, we have to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Nevertheless, Nehemiah didn't have that privilege at that point. And um, he had to be very, very careful. But it was a test of faith. And the, this, um, this next point is that he not only prayed for an opportunity, but he also planned for it and had his answer ready. And that's going back to what I said earlier. During this time, these days when he's in prayer and fasting and mourning, it isn't just that. He's got his pad out and he's got his pen, or his, as I say, parchment, and his pen going here uh, or whatever it was. And he's writing the things down that God is showing him. So that when the king answers, asks him this question, he's not saying, well, <coughs> not too sure really. Um, I, I want a bit of time off if it's possible. And um, I want to go to Jerusalem and there's a bit of trouble there and I'm, I want to see if I can do something. You know, I've got an urge to have a go and see if we can put this thing right. And the king would have said, what are you wasting my time for? <laughs> Hop it, you know, get back to your job. You know, but no, he had a, a plan that I think it must have impressed the king to the point the king was very, very cooperative. So it's important that we pray with our heart and with our head and that we take note of what God shows us in our times of, in times of prayer and that good planning is, is not a lack of faith in God. Uh, it's expressing a faith in God that I can have a confidence to plan because God has already endorsed what I'm doing. Uh, and is already speaking to me. And you notice um, these emergency prayers that he, he prays. Um, what's it? Verse 4, chapter 2. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And um, people have put words to these or names them. They call them arrow prayers. Have you heard of that? People shooting up arrow, arrow prayers to God. Um, and I'm sure that's right. You know, actually that's absolutely right. But it's on the foundation of a life of prayer. I think arrow prayers not going to mean too much if we don't ever pray any other kind of prayers and we don't spend time before God. Um, but arrow prayers are quite, are quite um, significant and legitimate in these circumstances because uh, Nehemiah has got his commission already. It's like being sent onto the battlefield with a commission of what to do and so on. But he gets, you know, if he wants a, a word from the, the commander back at headquarters, um, then he can get, get some up-to-date help, as it were that he needs. And so these prayers, and you'll find them a number of times through Nehemiah, but it was part of a life of prayer. And now Nehemiah is very bold. He's, he's got to this point, he just knows the good hand of God is with him. That's the kind of phrase he uses. He must have been absolutely elated, you know, even though probably still in fear and trembling before the king. And in essence he's saying, send me and give me. The king asked, so he said it. And um, he could not leave his post without the king's approval and he could not work in Jerusalem without the king's authority. Not at all. And um, so what, what, in essence, his requests were this. Make me governor so I can organise the work. 
I need some official standing uh, with the people when I get to Jerusalem. So make me the local governor, uh, which is what the king does. Give me letters of introduction for safe conduct during travel to Jerusalem. Now, if you know the story, you know that there are various officials who've got um, responsibility for bits of land around Jerusalem. Um, many of them are not Israelites. I think one of them was related um, had a, 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 to a woman who was an Israelite, but generally they weren't. Um, they were probably in the service of the king in some way as well, <clears throat> but they had no real interest uh, in the city of God. And so he said, give me letters of introduction so I've got safe passage. Give me letters of authority to obtain the necessary materials. He got it all worked out. You know, he got all the logistics worked out for this. And so when he came to the king, um, that's why the king was so cooperative. And he actually gets a military escort without even asking for it. Because now he's an official of the king. He's an, he's an official and he'll get a, a proper recognition for that. And um, he says, you know, God's gracious hand was upon me. If you um, look towards the end of um, chapter 2. And verse uh, 18. Um, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king has said to me. What an amazing start for this work. He's got God's gracious hand on him. He's got the full support of the king. And we have to accept the fact that sometimes God uses secular governments and officials and so on to actually give us support. We're told to pray for them anyway for, so that we may live peaceful lives. But they can actually uh, give us support. And we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't despise um, money that comes to, to the church by these means. If it's from the lottery, then maybe you might question that. But, but, but other means maybe, not to question it. If God arranges for these people to help. And then uh, he had faith to challenge others, 220. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He had no doubt about that. And here's the importance about this issue of confessing earlier. Right? He, he's got rid of all that baggage. Yes, you know, the, the, his people did dreadful things in the past, but this is the new day. It's part of God's prophesied future for the people. He's now been chosen to be part of this and he's not going to be dogged by all this stuff. That was confessed. It's dealt with. He can now be bold in the face of his enemies as he was. You know, God, the God of heaven, will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And in, in spite of ongoing opposition, in just 52 days, just uh, over seven weeks, the, the walls were rebuilt and the gates were restored. An amazing work of God. Because a man was prepared to pray, to make himself available to God, uh, to take risks uh, in terms of dealing with the king and, and the authorities, uh, and to, to have a plan as to what he wanted to do, what God had showed him to do. Just an, an amazing thing. And um, now he can get on with this work free from condemnation, has God's approval, and, um, you know, the, the people could have said, we don't deserve this. And he'd say, no, of course we don't, but God's gracious hand is upon us. And the things that God does for us, uh, as it were, we don't deserve it, but God's gracious hand is upon us as we demonstrated in communion. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for the detail that we have regarding um, your servants and how they approached you and how um, you prepared them for such a great work. And um, Father, help us, Lord, to apply these things to our lives. Um, Lord, for us to, uh, Lord, to consider the, just such the importance of, of taking our burdens to you in prayer. Um, Lord, not jump into conclusions or actions that are inappropriate, but Lord, to pray and to have the, the confidence and the patience to wait for your moments, Lord, for, to take action and to approach people. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we are part of something that your gracious hand is upon. Lord, your hand is upon the church. Lord, we have grace upon us. Lord, we have a throne of grace to come and to pray. And Lord, we thank you that we can be cleansed from our sins and all unrighteousness and come before you without condemnation. Lord, without any fear, um, Lord, of being put down or refused. Lord, your, our arms are open, your heart is open, your heaven is open to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.